0: I arrived with this very fancy degree, and (laughs) I was not prepared, you know, to be an executive director. Nothing prepares you to be an executive director.
1: Welcome to the Be Change Podcast. We're your hosts, Warren Goldstein-Gelb
2: and Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and about how to make a great difference in the world.
1: The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills.
2: Warren, when you and I were brainstorming Guest for Be Change, I immediately thought of Maria Elena Latona. She played such a pivotal role in the Boston area immigrant rights organization, Central Presente, and now she's doing equally incredible work at Neighbor to Neighbor, a grassroots political action organization. I hadn't realized, though, until we spoke that she literally jumped in as executive director right after she got her PhD in public policy at UMass Boston.
1: Yeah, what I learned from the interview was really how much Maria Elena represents the goal of the podcast. She talks about the development of herself as a person, the be part of be change and about social change. So I couldn't think of a better guest to start us off.
2: Welcome, Maria Elena.
0: Thank you, Marcy. Thank you, Warren. Such a pleasure to be with you both.
1: Thank you, and it's a pleasure to have you here.
2: I vividly recall the first time we met. It was a large convening focused on immigrant rights. It was about 17 years ago, and I was new at my job at Mascosh, and you were fairly new at Centro. But when they invited the audience to speak, you got up to the microphone and blew me and I'm sure everyone else away with your eloquence, passion, and clarity of vision. So I made a mental note that day that I wanted to meet you at some point, and I've had the good fortune of meeting you a number of times since. Um, So in order for us and, and the listeners to understand what has shaped that incredible passion and vision for social justice, can you share with us a little bit about your background?
0: Sure. Um, At the age of 50, almost 57, it's always hard for me to encapsulate my journey in a few words, because, you know, it is almost 57 years, right, in the making. Uh, But some important uh, aspects is that I am an immigrant. Uh, I think that uh, saying that already says something about uh, my experience and how it has shaped my understanding of who I am uh, in the world, what the world is all about. I am also a woman, I'm a person of color that looks like I am a person of color, right? Like I cannot pass for anything except for what I am. uh, Short, curly haired, you know, always speaking uh, English uh, with an accent. So that has also shaped, you know, how I understand myself and how I understand the world Around me. And um, I would say that the journey, by and large, has been characterized by some very profound moments of what I call existential crisis, with um, this uh, almost uh, inborn uh, sense in me of trying to make sense and trying to make meaning out of, uh, once again, myself. You know, who am I? And what is this world You know that I inhabit? And uh, by and large, you know, those uh, existential crises were very connected to that experience of being an immigrant, being a person of color, being a woman, because it's so related to those uh, core questions of identity, right? Like, who am I? Who am I? Because the who you are, you know, you carry that with you everywhere you go, in school, in your friendships, in your relationships. So it's been a very interesting experience of... I would, I would say a dance. A dance between the me that inhabits this body and the collectivity of human beings around me and the experiences around me. So that that kind of in big terms would be something about myself and of course there's a bunch of detail you know around that. But in essence, I would say that that is my life story which continues to unfold. Do you
1: want to talk a little bit about how that's changed, how that's evolved. I mean, you weren't always the person you think of yourself as now, and so um, maybe give us a few words about how that's evolved.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the most beautiful thing has been that as I've grown older, I have become way more comfortable in my so-called skin, uh, while at the same time not kind of tying my entire sense of the who I am with the way I look or the way that others view me. Um, and so the, the the older I get, the more joyful I become, the more um, accepting, understanding, and loving you know, of myself and the world I become, the more I'm able to see through a, a lot of stuff that when you met me, Marcy, I was so passionate about many of these things, um, the more I'm able to actually connect With all kinds of people around me and be able to see past, you know, a lot of those masks that I myself have worn and continue to wear and that we all do. So I think that that has been very beautiful, uh, that change in me. And at the same time, what doesn't change is that continued curiosity, right, of the I and the thou, the I and the we. It's just that that dance has changed, you know, from maybe something that is more confrontational and from a place of fear and anger to a, a more beautiful waltz, you know?
1: Can you give us a couple of examples or maybe comparing yourself now from when you first came to America, how would you say that you're different or have evolved uh, since, since coming?
0: Right. So uh, I think that when I first came to the United States, well, first of all, I was very young. You know, I was 13 years of age, and uh, I can't say that I had any real awareness at the time. But if I look back to the first maybe 10 to 15 years of my experience in the United States, uh, you know, I, I kind of thought that I was white. You know, and a lot of people go through that, by the way. Uh, it, it, take, it took me a long time to kind of understand uh, race dynamics in the United States. Uh, uh, usually they're more black and white, so to speak, right? And uh, when you are a Lat- uh, person from Latin America, uh, it takes a little while to kind of figure out who you are you know, in that very polarized racial spectrum. I mean, over time, of course, that has changed. You know, now in, in the year 2017, we have a more subtle understanding of race and ethnicity. You know, we have Latinos, Asians. I mean, it's more varied than when it was when I arrived um, in the US. So I think that that was kind of like my first existential crisis, like realizing that I'm not white. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, whoa. How,
1: how did that come about? I mean, wh- was there a particular event that set that uh, identity uh, that d- your identity became clear to you, or mm-hmm. was it uh, accumulation of? It was
0: an accumulation. It was very slow, very, 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 very slow. I, I just didn't have language, right? I didn't have language. I lived in a bubble. I'm a, I'm a person. Or privilege, you know, relative privilege with uh, a, a, other Latino immigrants, a, other people of color. I, I came to the United States with class privilege, right? Like that's very important to to highlight. I came with a student visa. I've never been arrested. I, uh, you know, speak English now. I have a fancy education, so I've always had class privilege. And um, when you have privilege of that kind, a, it takes you longer. To understand what's going on, because privilege can act as a blind, you know, blinds your sight, you know, blindsided by what's really going on around you. And so I think it was an accumulation of stuff, you know. Later on, I learned that what was bothering me was what we now call microaggressions that I was not able to pick up on, right? Like was, I, I just felt in my body a sense of discomfort, or in my heart a sense of like, you know, I'm not wanted, I'm not liked. But I had no idea that it was more related to the way that I look or whatever, and that there's a word for that called microaggressions, you know. So that was the very first like shift, and then uh, in typical fashion, I think, uh, not just for me but for a lot of people, when I started uh, getting politicized around these things, then of course my I, I I swing, you know, to the other end of the spectrum, and I become this very uh, passionate this very, like, almost angry person that denounces, you know, a white supremacy, that denounces racism and capitalism, and I start wearing, right, wearing all those political identities 24-7. Like, that's not who I am, right? And uh, that lasted, I don't know, 15 years until I crashed. And I, because that uh, that is very exhausting, you know, to be carrying that level of anger, To be carrying that level of um, frustration, to be carrying that level of armor, you know, sword and armor all the time, can be terribly exhausting. And so that, you know, that had me questioning was once again that the who am I? Am I really this person, right? Am I am I really this? And uh, that's why, growing older, you know, with more wisdom, I am able to embrace less polarity, but more subtlety. You know, the both and the and, not the either or. The realization that at the very core, I am none of those things, right? At the very, very core, I am incredibly unique. And what makes me unique is not really what I look like or what I sound like, or even what I know. But what makes me unique is how I process information, how I feel, how I connect with people or not, how I laugh. Like those are the, the uh, intrinsic aspects of my being that make me unique. And that those things are actually universal in nature. You know, like we all laugh, but we have our distinctive laugh. Like we all cry, like we all feel. And that those are the things that are both unique and universal. And that those are the things that actually matter in the end. And so I, I do my work, I have to do my work, And I do it still from the sense of passion and from the sense of injustice, but I don't completely, like I used to, I was like merged in that identity, right? I couldn't separate it. Now I can, and so to me, that's the blessing uh, of going old.
1: (laughs) Well, you're hardly old.
0: (laughs)
2: Well, taking taking yourself back to that that earlier phase, because it's it's good to for us to understand the different phases. Was was Central your first actual sort of work in a nonprofit, and what what led up to your becoming jumping in and becoming executive director?
0: Yeah, you know, I had I had had other jobs as what I called paper pusher, you know, but when I finished the, the graduate program at UMass, which is what radicalized me and politicized me. I really had no bigger ambition than to be part uh, of a grassroots organization. And it was at UMass that I came to know a bunch of Latino community-based organizations, including Centro Presente. And going back to this idea of privilege, I was blown away that this organization existed because I had never needed it. Mm -hmm. Blown away that this organization had been there for years and I did not know that Centro Presente existed. So I fell in love. I mean, like I fell in love with Centro Presente. And Centro Presente gave me more than I ever gave Centro. Mm. Centro gave me my roots, my history, my culture. I started speaking Spanish again. I felt loved. I belonged. You know, like a whole bunch of things. Even as I've grown older and I've described this process with you all, that love that I have for Centro Presente um, only grows, grows deeper, you know, with time. It was, a, it was a real gift for me those years that I was there.
2: And when you arrived, the organ- as you said, the organization was fairly well established. It had been around for 18 years. Do you recall what it was like to come into the organization as a new leader, to build the organization? What were some of your early lessons?
0: Yeah, I sure do. You know, I, I, I arrived with this very fancy degree and... <laughs> I I was not prepared, you know, to be an executive director. Nothing prepares you to be an executive director. I think that both of you would know that. Nothing. I mean, I I arrived with a bunch of theories and, uh, you know, feeling really good, you know, about how I could analyze policy and stuff like that. But nothing prepared me for the complexity of both managing like the, the simple management, right, the, the finances, the fundraising, the, you know, staff, the board, and, and the leading of a community-based organization like Centro Presente, meaning who are we, where are we going, why do we exist? Like, I mean, those very, very core questions of leadership, you know, uh, that create meaning for the people that are part of that organization. So nothing prepared me, and uh, what really got me on that journey of doing something with this beautiful organization were uh, very hard-earned lessons, a huge financial crisis, and I mean gigantic. You know, we were pretty much bankrupt uh, the first year that I was there, and so like really learning how to put budgets together, how to like... Like really figuring that stuff out. A huge crisis with the staff, you know, where they were organizing against me and like really learning how to navigate that. A I, I gigantic crisis with the board of directors and, and learning how to navigate that. So a lot of very tough and painful lessons uh, were the ones that uh, both taught me skills, you know, management skills, but also clarified, you know, this leadership question for me of, who I was as the executive director, what that meant, and the huge responsibility in my hands you know, to uh, figure out a way to chart a path forward in this organization in a way that was consistent and resonant with values that were you know, deeply held by me, like democracy, lifting the power of the people. So it was really that journey of difficulties. <laughs> We can very much sympathize as, yeah. as executive
2: directors, and um, you know one of one of the things we have in common is we both have been directors of sort of member driven, member led organizations. And you have many stakeholders. Um, you've got the constituents slash members. You've got staff, and you've got board. You've got funders. So early on, and then perhaps as it evolved, how did you approach mm-hmm. you know sort of the engagement of these stakeholders and how did that change over time?
0: Yeah, sure. So part of the answer is that I simplified it in that membership became kind of like the same as staff and board in that it was integrated with the leadership development, you know, the power building. And we're doing that at Neighbor Neighbor again, meaning there's your membership and the membership is your source of power. And we have a leadership pipeline for that membership. And so we engage them and we invest in them and we start hiring. Our organizers come from that membership and our board of directors comes from that membership. So over time, the feeling at Centro Presente and definitely that's happening now at Neighbor or Neighbor is that this is our organization, right? It's a people's organization. It belongs to us. And so the uh, uh, alignment around board staff and member leaders, it gets to be easier. You know, because we are in this together. The way that the alignment happened with external, like allies and uh, funders, uh, with allies it was always a little bit more tricky because uh, allies also are their own entities, their own independent entities, and you always needed to respect that. But with funders, it was about learning how to tell a very, very good story of us and uh, making sure that the fundraising was very grounded Uh, in that idea. You know, like we are a a people organization. Uh, So with funders, I've always been fortunate that I've been able to tell that story and not have to split the organization too much, you know, in terms of what we are doing to please the funders and what we are doing to please ourselves.
2: What were um, some other ways that that you changed as a leader over your eight years at Centro? I
0: I, I think probably the most important change in me Oh my God, I want to start crying. That's exactly it. Um, my heart became soft, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, it, it, by the time I left, um, the sense of gratitude, I mean, the profound sense of gratitude, you know, of what I had been given, uh, or what I had received, uh from the community from the i mean it was just profound and tremendous i i definitely didn't have that sense of gratitude at the beginning trust me (laughs) um so i became more soft-hearted and uh um grateful and uh really aware of my littleness right like i became very aware of how little i was in this beautiful collective project and um how, and I don't say little in a, in a, in a small sense, but in a, in a beautiful sense, because I experienced, you know, that give and take, um, that dance that I've been talking about. And so leaving and not feeling like I was this lonely executive director, right, like I felt the first few years, but, uh, but that I was an equal among beautiful equals. I think that that was the biggest change for me. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. and I know it was probably one of the hardest decisions you had to make. But what what did you uh, what made you decide to leave in two thousand
0: eight? You know, it wasn't that hard to be honest with you, because I was actually ready to leave uh, three years prior to the time I left. When I was interviewed for the job at Centro Presente, I'll never forget because uh, one of the staff would always remind me of that interview. <laughs> you know, like one of the questions is. Uh, um, how long do you plan to stay? You know, like that's one of the questions you always get in interviews. And uh, yeah, I, my answer was three to five years. And so um, Carlitos, Carlos Gálvez, he, like, he, he had this like shock in his face. Mm-hmm. And then he said, that's how little you love us, Maria Elena? And then I remember saying, no, that's how much I love you. That is how much I love you. I mean, I, I, I believe in organizing yourselves out of a job myself out of a job and uh, i am here you know to like prepare one of you you know uh, to take my 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 job my my chair and i i'm thinking it's gonna be three to five years of course it ended up being nine years Mm -hmm. uh, but i'm very very dedicated to that notion and it gives me a sense of satisfaction actually uh, to get the organization to a point where it's got that leadership pipeline and that it doesn't need me, you know. It, it, to me, that is the greatest sense of accomplishment that I can get and that I can have. So no, it was not difficult in that way. No.
2: We uh, we recently saw a wonderful video of a presentation you gave at UMass Boston, where you described leaving Centro and the feeling that you had lost your last name. Oh yeah. Um, Centro had actually become a part of you that it felt a fairly traumatic loss to your identity and. I think that re- experience would resonate with anyone who has completely immersed themselves in an organization um, for several years. Can you tell us about that experience and how you got through it?
0: Oh my God, that is such a great question. Uh, I, you know, And it goes back to earlier, what I was saying about how you shed these uh, layers of uh, who you think you are. But it, it was remarkable how literally the phone stopped ringing. And my email started being busy. Like, it was remarkable. And uh, and the more remarkable thing was that from then on, whenever I would go to anything, you know, I would just be Elena Letona. Maria Elena. Maria Elena Letona. That's it. And uh, the the difficulty in answering the question, well, like, what do you do? Like, you know, which is, who are you in this society? Right? Yeah. And I was like, "Oh my God! I used to be Elena Letona, executive director of Centro Presente, and I don't have that big title anymore. You know, right after my name, and it's like I am nobody, right? So there was a little bit of that. No question about it. That a little bit of that crisis uh, in identity, and that's exactly what I used to say. You know, I've lost my last name, and uh, I did get very lonely and disconnected in my consulting practice, which is what I, I did, you know, pretty much after I left Centro." Um, And and, and I remember when I decided to uh, apply for the job of Neighbor Neighbor, I remember texting a very dear friend of mine and it it just said, I am considering taking on a new last name. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, she knew exactly what I was talking about. So yeah, so uh, I'm very aware that we get very tied, very connected as part of who we are, you know, uh, that title uh, and what it means. And that in this time around I'm preparing myself I've learned that lesson. I'm preparing myself because I'm getting ready to shed that last name, and and I'm preparing myself that that will happen, and that I'm gonna be able to navigate it way better this time. Huh. Then, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, that brings up the fo- the following question in terms of um, how you have evolved as an executive director. What's different about neighbor to neighbor, your executive directorship, and uh, wh- how you started in Centro?
0: Right. So the organization is very different. It, it works on different things. It works with a different community. Uh, it does the work in a very different way. It has been hard, for example, that we do nothing in immigrant rights, especially in today's context, which is just horrific. Uh, it feels strange, you know, it, to have done what I did at Centre Presente and, and be doing nothing, you know, right now around immigrant rights. So it has been a different story of love, you know, that's probably the best way that I can describe it. You know, for those of us that have had the good fortune or maybe not so good fortune, you know, to have had different loves, (laughs) you know, we know that um, we do love again, but that the love is very different, you know, like the connection is uh, for different reasons or whatever. So there are a lot of things that I can um, compare between central and neighbor neighbor, many, many things. Like there was a financial crisis, you know. I've had to deal with the board, uh, you know. These uh, transitions in executive leadership, I think, uh, carry, you know, all those things um, uh, as part as part of that transition. But a, I have not uh, taken things as personally, which is really really good, right? Uh, I've been able to be more cool-headed about stuff than I used to be at Centro Presente. and uh, I have been more open to what neighbor to neighbor. Has to teach me. And I think that that's been very good because Neighborhood Neighbor has had a lot to teach me. You know, I have learned about electoral work. I have learned about going door the door, which we never did at Center Present. Like, what is it like to organize a community when you are 100% an organizing organization? You're not providing any services whatsoever. I mean, like, that has been a huge learning curve for me. Uh, so, uh, the the Neighborhood Neighbor has taught me a lot uh, that I have loved. And I mean loved. I love going door-to-door. I love the electoral work now. And uh, it has given me different ways of thinking about power building and and change. Uh, I have connected with a different community, which is primarily Dominican and Puerto Rican and African-American. And I've loved that as well. But what hasn't changed, which is very similar to my experience at Central, Is that we are deeper and more aligned around identity, around who we are, around mission, around values, around that integration between uh, community membership, staff and board. When I got in, that was not the case.
2: What were some of the key steps that you took to integrate the organization and to have all the voices in harmony at the, at, within the organization?
0: Well, uh, this time around with the financial crisis, uh, I was way more intentional of how we were going to cut, and how we were going to live within our means. Already in my mind, knowing where I wanted to be as an organization. So we sacrificed hugely at the administrative, you know, top top leadership level, or management level, rather, we shrunk like crazy, right? You know, that level of the organization, and we started investing. Uh, anything new that came in, we started investing it in the field because I knew that I wanted to move the organization more towards a locally driven organization. anything you wanted to
2: finalize?
1: No. Um, well, is there any final... Are we up to final words? Yeah, <laughs> cool. final words. Yeah. Um, anything you would like to add?
2: Yeah,
0: I wanna <laughs> say thank you to the both of you. I, I think that this is a very beautiful podcast series that you guys are putting together. I uh, thank you for uh, having the wisdom and the insight of uh, helping us all become more aware of the truth. I mean, there are very few truths that I assert at my age But this one is one truth that I do assert. And that is that we are individual and we are collective and we are both. We're not one or the other, we are both. That we are always engaged in that dance. Uh, That it's not either or, but it's always both and. That I am shaped by the society, but I also get to shape the society. And that the more that we grow in awareness of that, the better equipped, I think, we're gonna be in engaging the work of change, both at my individual level and at the collective level. Because at the end of the day, I just heard somebody say that if there's a good definition of God, is change. That mm. is the one constant that's eternal. Thank
2: you, Maria Elena. I think you're an enormously powerful, wonderful human being. So thank you, so you for stupid.
0: joining us. <laughs> the, the last thing is not mine, by the way. It's this, Octavia Butler, who's a science fiction writer, apparently said, "God is change, because it is the one eternal constant. Isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful. Yeah, it's incredible. And for me, it's a sense of liberation because it's like, oh, you know, we don't have to figure it out wow. oh, that's all. That's yeah, not there. Right, there, right. you know, this constant. This is always going to be mm-hmm. change. You know, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast.
1: If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net.
2: Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues.
1: Thanks to our producer, John Consilvio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media and Boston Free Radio.